Well, grace and mercy and peace be with you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, snow days are fun uh, because we're a little, little short-handed on uh, people here today, so we don't have a sound guy, so uh, I'm, the, I'm the sound guy and can control this kind of stuff with my iPad. Uh, so Kevin, you were rocking out on two songs earlier. I forgot to push the button to unmute your drums. Uh, to those of you joining us online, I forgot to push the button to unmute everything so that you could hear the first half of the service. So I think maybe everything is happening the way that it should be now. God is good and he's here with us today. Bryant, I forgot to tell you in the back, I'm going to make my slides go for my sermon. All right, I can control a lot of stuff with this scary little iPad here. Hey, we've come a long way in the story together. Those of you who have been journeying with us over the last 21 weeks, we've made it through the whole Old Testament so far. So those of you that have been reading along in the story, if you've been tracking along in your Bibles with it, we've covered a lot. Think about it. We've covered a couple of thousand years of human history, learned names, family trees, studied military conflicts and warfare, learned about biblical prophecy, and all throughout we have seen God's hand of provision and promise holding everything together, even in the midst of a world in chaos. Over our time in the Old Testament, we have encountered a few major themes that are at play all the time in the Old Testament. First of all, we have seen that God is the giver and the sustainer of life. God's the giver and the sustainer of life. Where have we seen this play out? Well, most clearly in the creation story as God created all of life. But we've also seen God be the sustainer of life in stories like, like Joseph and his family as they survived a famine and then God provided for them and the, and the Israelites to live in Egypt for 400 years. We see God sustaining life as he led God's people up out of the wilderness with Moses wandering in the wilderness for 40 years providing water from a rock and mysterious food, manna falling from the sky. God is the giver and the sustainer of life. We see it all the time in every Old Testament story. What we also see throughout the Old Testament is that God is the giver and the keeper of promises. God is the one who makes promises to his people and God is the one who keeps promises. Again, all throughout the scriptures, but very clearly an example is God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham, I will be with you and I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. I will make your descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky, God said to Abraham. And that promise was kept over and over and over again, passed down through the family tree from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, actually even to us today. And finally, throughout the Old Testament, we see God's activity in those last two themes, but what do we see people do? <laughs> people are not very faithful to God. Not as individuals, 
Not for very long, not consistently, and not even collectively as a group. I think of David. David being this man after God's own heart. This man that God chose to be his representative that seemed like such a good guy, and he was. But he couldn't even keep it all together and live a perfect life. We see it throughout the Old Testament multiple times even. uh, Like God's collective people in the wilderness with Moses. The law is given to them. And the people say, we will do it. We'll keep the law. A couple minutes later, they're building golden calves and worshiping those things. People are not very faithful to God. But God is faithful God is the giver and keeper of promises. God is the giver and sustainer of life. These themes are all throughout the Old Testament. You have seen them, and perhaps you'll even see them at play in our story today. Even though I'm not going to show them to you explicitly, you can be thinking about them and see them at play. Today, uh, our last chapter, as the story gives it to us in the Old Testament, is with Nehemiah and Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem after the return of the exiles back to Jerusalem. Again, if you're not familiar with this part of the story, uh, I encourage you to pick up your your, your scriptures. There is a whole book of the Bible called Nehemiah, and you can read about it there. But here's who Nehemiah was. Nehemiah Nehemiah was a high-ranking official uh, in the Persian administration. Nehemiah was a Jewish guy, but he had a very trusted position as cupbearer to the king of Persia. And he was a Jewish guy. Again, the exiles, the Jewish exiles, they had returned back to Jerusalem already. They've been back. They've been building the temple. We looked at Ezra two weeks ago. He had been doing his work. Now, Nehemiah was still living in Persia, but he was very concerned about how the Jews were doing back home. And he got a report from one of his brothers. One of his brothers went back home or went to Jerusalem to check on progress and came back to report to Nehemiah. And the report was not very good. And the report was mostly focused on the fact that the defenses, the military defenses of the Jewish people in Jerusalem were still in shambles. The wall, the city wall around Jerusalem was still destroyed, still burned down from 70 years prior when the Babylonians had knocked it down. Now, Nehemiah gets this report from his brother, and Nehemiah is a good politician. He knows that a city is not really a city without proper defense mechanisms, especially in the middle of a culture that's filled with war and tribalism. So, what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah goes to the king of Persia, and he asks for permission to head back to Jerusalem and work on rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. And the king of Persia actually obliges and sends him on. As a matter of fact, the king even makes Nehemiah the governor over Judah. So, he's got political authority in this place. I mentioned Ezra already. Ezra, um, Ezra was kind of a contemporary of Nehemiah, but he went back to Jerusalem prior to Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra was a builder of some sorts, but he was much more of like a spiritual builder. Um, Ezra was an expert teacher of God's word, and so his emphasis was teaching people God's law, the word of God. 
Nehemiah was much more of kind of a physical builder, a political builder. That was his expertise. But they were both concerned about rebuilding the city of Jerusalem according to God's plan. If you were with us two weeks ago, I mentioned how when Ezra returned to teach God's people the law, that he faced opposition from local people living in the area. They did not want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. They were threatened by this power and this authority that they were given. And so this opposition, they threatened Ezra's life. They threatened the Jewish people during their building project. And when Nehemiah returned, the same thing happened. There was opposition in the land by a guy, uh, by a guy named Tobiah and another guy named Sanballat leading the charge, threatening the lives of Nehemiah. There was even an assassination plot that was spoiled against Nehemiah. It was actually, it was such a violent threat that the people rebuilding the wall, the Jews, had to build with one hand and have a sword in their other hand. It was that serious. And as I look at these things, as I, as I watch what's happening here in Nehemiah, I ask myself, and maybe you do too, don't you ever wonder, why can't people just get along? <laughs> it's that simple. Why, why can't people just get along? Why does there always have to be opposition to an opinion or a way of life? Why does there have to be any sorts of walls even constructed here on earth? Why do we have to live life this way? Can't we all just get along? When reading Nehemiah, and I read the whole thing straight through this week, it's hard not to draw comparisons between what Nehemiah and the Jews were facing with what we're seeing in the news with Ukraine and, and Russia in many ways. Nehemiah's life was threatened. These people for religious and socioeconomic political reasons did not want to see the Jews succeed. They were threatened by them and they wanted to overtake them. And so that's why the Jewish people wanted to have their wall built. We see it happening, right, in Ukraine. Maybe around their cities they don't have such fortified walls as they had around Jerusalem and yet we're seeing walls be built with sandbags and burned out Russian tanks, trying to keep the Russians at bay as they continue to progress and uh, offer threats against the people there and even against their president. It's a very serious and sad situation. I would say it's all because of hatred and hostility in the hearts of people against their neighbors. Now, Ukraine is getting a lot of attention right now in our minds and in our media, and rightly so. It's a very sad and serious situation. But I don't know if you're aware that unfortunately Ukraine is not the only place where violent conflicts are happening in our world right now. There's a map I'm going to put up on the screen here. This is... Um, by the, uh, the, the, the Council on Foreign Relations, an American agency that keeps track of violent conflicts happening around the world. Uh, the dots on this, oh, that's interesting. Huh, I don't know why that happens on this sometimes. Uh, that's a world map behind those dots. 
all right? Imagine on your left-hand side uh, the United States. That first dot is in Mexico with drug cartels, and then there's some other stuff. So that far top dot um, in, the, in the middle, that's Ukraine and Russia, and then below that, a lot of stuff in Africa and Asia. Uh, you can go to this website on the, on the bottom here, um, and uh, that's the, the, the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, and you can click on any of these dots and see uh, what is happening in these conflict zones, the most recent da data, what's being done, uh, the threats that it poses to United States interests and to the people uh, living there. It looks like a lot. It looks like a world at war, doesn't it? Um, and, and it is uh, in many respects. However, it's very interesting, actually, if you talk to historians, that they'll tell you that uh, the time in which we are living right now is probably the most at peace that the world has ever been, uh, historically, militarily. And so I guess we have that uh, to bank on. However, when I look at this and when I see the media reports, it's baffling uh, because there is a world at war and at conflict. Now, in addition to all of these violent conflicts that are happening around the world, there are many other skirmishes that are going on, many other conflicts. There are convoys of trucks and truckers in many different countries coming together, blocking traffic in order to make their strong opposition uh, to the government be made known. There are protests and rallies that happen all over our country and all over the world at different times. Some peaceful, nonviolent, but some violent as well, where people are making strong oppositions be made known about opposing political parties or people groups or agendas. What if you had a map of conflicts that are going on in your heart and in your life? What would the conflict map of your own heart look like? Who is it that you have hostility or hatred towards in your heart right now? Is it your next-door neighbor that you just can't seem to get along with? Is it your boss, a coworker, your mom, maybe even your own spouse? What regions of your heart and your life are plotted with those dots saying, this is where a skirmish of hostility is being waged in my life? Why is there so much hostility and hatred in this world? Why can't we all just get along? Why is it? The answer why, when we're trying to deal with and figure out what's going on with all of this conflict in the world, has a simple answer, and it has a complicated answer. The simple answer is this. This has always been a world at war. This has always been a world at conflict since the day that Adam and Eve ate that fruit and enmity entered their hearts and their minds. What was a perfect and pure relationship was now soiled with sin and separation between them and between their God. It's a simple answer. It's always been this way. 
But it's also a complicated answer. If you try to tell me why you have hostility towards people or why nations and people groups have hostility towards one another, there are oftentimes many layers, be they religious, socioeconomic, political, geographic, historical, or just simply the fact that you can't figure out how to get along because you have differing opinions. So what can we do about it? As Christian people, as individuals living in a world of warfare, what role can we play? Is there anything that we can do to end the hostility in this world? Lent is a good start. Lent? Lent is a good start, Pastor? I don't even know what Lent is. Well, let me tell you. Right now in the church year, we are in the season of Lent. That reminds me, Pastor Kevin, you and I are wearing the wrong colored stoles today. We don't know what, which way is up today. We should be wearing purple, all right? We'll change it for the next, next service. But this is the season of Lent, and Lent is a season of repentance, a time of penitence, a time where we prepare for the death of Jesus, but also for his resurrection. So Lent is this time of of repentance, this time where we draw close to Jesus. Many times people utilize Lent as a time for fasting and for prayer, not to make their lives miserable, but to be drawn closer to Jesus in repentance and in prayer. In Mark chapter 1, in our gospel lesson today, we were introduced to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, what was his message in preparing people for Jesus? Repent! Repent! What does repent mean? It literally means to turn around. It means if you're facing towards sin and living in sin, turn away from it, flee from it, run away and run to Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So why is Lent a good start to ending conflict and hostility? Because if we are repenting from sin, It means we're repenting from hatred. It means we're repenting from hostility and we're turning towards Jesus who is our peace. And so if we are truly repenting in this season of Lent and turning towards Jesus, if nothing else, it ought to stop us from having hatred and hostility in our hearts and from starting needless conflicts and instead striving to live at peace in Jesus. And maybe once that happens in our hearts, maybe once there is humility and forgiveness from Jesus, then maybe we'll be ready to heed the words of the Apostle Paul, which we heard from Ephesians 4 today. In Ephesians 4 today, we heard the Apostle Paul drive home a point that the people of God ought to live in unity with one another. Whenever Paul was writing, pretty much exclusively in almost every single letter. He is writing to people groups, churches, who were divided, who were struggling to get along. They were divided on socioeconomic lines, on political lines, on historical lines, on religious lines, on gender lines. They were divided all over the place, and Paul is talking to them saying, 
This is not the way that God's people live. God's people live in unity. And so in Ephesians 4, Paul is saying, look at the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Instead of looking at the things you don't like about people, instead, look at how God has uniquely gifted them. Focus on the positive traits and characteristics that God has written into their lives. And in humbleness of heart, ask that God would unite us together. See, here's the reality. Prior to that, prior to Ephesians 4, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul also wrote that Jesus Christ, who is our peace, tore down the wall of hostility that existed between us and the Father. Paul says that Jesus killed the hostility by dying on the cross. There is no hostility that God harbors against you. Therefore, how can you harbor any hostility against anyone else? This is what Paul says. Paul is bringing people together in the peace of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus himself even says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus Christ killed the hostility that existed between us and the Father. And the promise of eternal life is one in which there will be no more hatred. In, what, in, in a world where there will be no more hostility. The promise of heaven, the promise of eternal life, is one in which you get to dwell forever with people that you are hostile towards right now. <laughs> that you don't like very much. Yeah, you get to live an eternal life with them. People of every nation, of every tribe, of every tongue, of every language, of every people group, of every political party, people who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, we will get to live together confessing and living in the light and peace of Jesus. Won't it be great? So live in that reality now. Bring the kingdom of Christ here now. That is what we have been called to do as Christians. There is no room in the life of a Christian to harbor hatred or hostility against anyone. Let me take you back to the story of Nehemiah quick here as we wrap up. Eventually, Nehemiah was successful. Eventually, Nehemiah was successful in, uh, in, in completing his campaign pledge he had told people he would build that wall. Sorry, that's a joke. Um, he even got the Persians to pay for it. All right, moving on. For real, though, it's true. He built the wall. They put it up. He was successful. But then he and Ezra, they were united. They were united in their purpose of, of building up God's people to the beautiful promises that the prophets had prophesied. They saw happening before their very eyes the temple being rebuilt, the law being put on people's hearts, the walls being constructed, and in the minds of the people there, eternity was coming, the king was coming, the Messiah was coming, it was all about to happen. <laughs> However, let me take you back to those themes that I showed you at the very beginning of this sermon. Those things were all still present there among the people. Especially that one about people not being faithful for very long. 
In Ezra and Nehemiah's time, that's exactly what happened. They were so bound and destined to do well, but they didn't. The end of Nehemiah ends on a very sour note with him beating people and ripping out their hair. You can read it for yourself. He was very frustrated and upset that things were not going well. And yet, even in the midst of that, the other themes that I shared with you are still true. God is the giver and sustainer of life. God is the giver and keeper of promises. He promised that he would bring back his people, that he would restore his people, that he would rebuild Jerusalem, that he would put it all back together, that eventually there would be a world that was built where there were no walls, where they were all taken down, where all of those people of every nation and tribe and language and tongue were dwelling together, where the lion laid down with the lamb. And the Jewish people wondered, when will it come? When will it come? Historically, in our Bibles, that's when things stop. It's about the year 450-ish B.C. The prophet Malachi was the last prophet to speak, and then in our Bibles, there's about 400 years of silence. The people of God, they've got God's word, they've got their temple, they've got their city, they've got their city wall. Is that all that God's got in store for them? Is that it? Is that where the story ends? Oh, by no means. That's why you have to come back next week. That's why you need to put on your red coats, grow out your white beards, make your list, and check it twice, because next week is Christmas, all right? So come on back, and we'll look forward to seeing how the story unfolds. In Jesus Christ's name, we wrap up here today.